Hello and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated. Today we're going to tackle the topic of voting. Who got to vote, when they got to vote, why, what it meant to the country. I'm Jimmy LaSalle and as always we have our resident master of all things history, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. Okay, so today we're going to talk about voting. Today, the voting requirements are you have to be a U.S. citizen and 18 years of age and older. But it wasn't always this way. Over the course of our nation's history, the right to vote has been extended to various groups and the age requirement has changed. The extension of the right to vote didn't happen easily and it wasn't always achieved peacefully. People died. People were beaten. People were lynched. People were left to rot in jail cells, um, all because they wanted the right to vote. And it's important to understand what voting meant to people before they had the right to have it. You know, today people look at voting as something that they may do, or they don't have the time to do, or they don't like anybody who's running, so they kind of throw it away. But it's important to understand that at one point in time in history, unless you are a white male, you didn't always have the right to vote. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 58% of eligible voters voted in the 2016 presidential election. That's pretty high. Um, In most presidential election years, the number usually hovers around the 40s. So if you think about the number of people who could vote and don't, they could completely change the tide of the election. So it's important to understand that your vote does count. The only way it doesn't count is if you don't vote. In the midterm elections of 2018, 47% of eligible voters actually voted. Voted In midterm elections, what most people don't understand is that every two years, the entire U.S. House of Representatives is up for re-election. I would wager probably a significant amount of money that most people do not know who their representatives are in the House of Representatives. If you are angry about where this country is going politically, who are your representatives? Where have they stood on those topics that you so passionately post about on social media? But do you know who your representatives are? Have you gone out and voted? If the answer is no, in my opinion, take a seat. Because if you're not voting, if you're not exercising that right, you're not creating change. You know, a lot of people in the news have talked about how they have, you know, sent emails to their local representatives, maybe for even the first time. Keep doing it. And then they're angered because maybe it bounced back or they figured out that those representatives – kind of grouped all of those emails and sent them straight to spam. Well, you know what? Send them the the information the old-fashioned way. Make them have to open up those letters. They work for you. Make them work. Now, why aren't people voting? Maybe it's discontent with the process. Perhaps you feel your vote doesn't count. You had to work. Sometimes the hours aren't always conducive. Your employer can't tell you that you can't go and vote. It's important to understand that. Most polling places will open at 6 a.m., typically before most people have to go to work. 
But of course, you know, everybody's work hours change. But your employer can't tell you that you can't go and vote. You don't like any of the candidates. You don't feel as though either person is going to make a difference. The only way your voice doesn't count is if you don't vote. If you don't vote, you've lost your right to complain because you've got the president you deserve. You didn't vote. Well, that's the presidential election is every, every four years, and I think people view that as, as a bigger one for sure. But there are other things that you're voting on. And if you are in a state that is traditionally sending all of its candidates to one party, like let's say New York, California, Illinois, which are predominantly Democratic-run states, you have people that don't show up because, and they're Republican because, oh, my vote's not going to matter. You know what? It might not stem the tide for a presidential election, but you still have your, your, con your congressional you have your Senate, you have your local state, you have, you have state judges. State, judges, state Senate, um, state assemblies, and all of these are done by your voting district. So you got to look at the smaller piece of it, and I think all politics are quote-unquote local. Um, but if you're not happy with the way things are or you're not happy with, with anything, that's the time to be heard. And you know what? If your state is predominantly one particular party if everybody goes and votes you what did you say you said 40 percent before or, or yeah in the midterm election it was 47 percent of eligible voters okay so voters. that's that's a and midterm. imagine how that's many high. people could vote but aren't registered to vote different issue you know different issue with the registration i'm not a fan of the, the mail-in ones but you know that's a little bit of an opinion there because I think people should have to show up with an ID, and you know, otherwise you have dead people voting and, and other things. The number, all right. The number <laughs> of dead people voting. Let's let's not go there. there that's not a viable. I said I said argument. that was opinion, and probably but even not right. look at the situation we are in today with a global pandemic. There are people who, and rightfully so, are nervous of going out and waiting on lines and voting. The same people who have not gone out to stores, maybe family members are out and voting for them. I mean, if you look at the age group that most consistently votes, it's your retirees. It's your older U.S. citizens who are regularly going out and voting because there are those hot-button issues of things like Social Security, of things like health care, that they do not want to see taken away. But if people of all ages went out and voted, it would make a huge difference. Gene, I don't disagree at all. Um, I think there's too much ignorance and apathy. People don't know. People don't care. And it's been brewing over the course of a number of years. People take for granted their ability to vote. And instead of exercising that right, they think, oh, I can just go next time. Yeah. But you know what? It's always important. It's always important this time because you could end up with something that is – not exactly what you like and like you said before if you didn't vote then you don't get a right you don't you don't get to complain you know what you just don't get it but forget it you could have changed the tide of the election or if enough people sure felt the same way they could yes. have changed the tide of the election to understand why it is so important to register to vote and actually vote in elections it's important to take a look back at who had the right to vote and when it was given. At the creation of our government in 1789, 
the only people who could vote were white landowning men over the age of 21. Our founding fathers didn't trust men without property. The feeling of the time was that this group was the most qualified to rule. Men without land had no real ties. Could we trust them? Individual states and eventually territories could determine who could vote. A few states and territories allowed women and freed blacks to vote, usually as long as they met the landowning qualifications. This would be the status quo until the presidency of Andrew Jackson. Jackson was referred to as the champion of the common man. By the 1830s, the majority of states removed the landowning qualification, and we now had what was referred to at the time as universal white manhood suffrage. So as long as you were white, male, over the age of 21, you could vote. You no longer had to own property. The next change to the right to vote came after the end of the Civil War. In 1870, the 15th Amendment was passed to the U.S. Constitution. Um, it stipulated that the right to vote, and I'm going to quote from the amendment, couldn't be abridged or denied on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The wording of that amendment is critical. In no way, shape, or form does it guarantee the right to vote. At this point in time in history, most people who were abolitionists were also feminists. And many feminists argued, hey, we need to get the word gender in here. And women were told, nope, not your time. This amendment will not pass. And so you have to understand that in 1870, people were more comfortable giving freed blacks the right to vote than they were women. Was that an educational thing? Well, if you look at it, for, for people who were enslaved in this country, it was illegal for a slave to learn how to read and write. So most, most people who had been slaves were illiterate. So they could not read or write. There are some who, who were literate. They were taught on, on the sneak, but it was more, more common for them not to be literate. And if you look at the wording of that amendment, couldn't be denied on the basis of race, color, previous or condition of servitude. We're not guaranteeing you the right to vote. We're just saying we can't tell you that you can't vote because of your race, because of your color, because of your previous condition of servitude. And that wording basically opened the door for Jim Crow laws and all of these different avenues that southern states in particular used to deny people the right to vote. Well, we'll get into the Jim Crow laws. Um, so question. Back at the beginnings of our country, they allowed the right to vote to landowners, white male landowners. If mm -hmm. you were if you were black and you happened to own land, or was it illegal at that point in time? If you were a freed black and, and and understand, like these are terms, these are historical terms that we're using for the purpose of giving this information mm -hmm. out. A lot of these terms are by no way, shape or form terms that we should be throwing out in daily conversation. So if we're gonna understand why we're using certain terms, it's the historical nature of the topic. 
Fair enough. So I just want to explain that. So some states and territories did allow women and freed blacks the right to vote. If they own land. If they own land. That was typically the qualification there. Because they had a stake in the country. They had a stake yes. in what was going on. Because but that was land. not the norm across the country at the time. If you happen to live in a particular state or in a particular territory that allowed you to vote, then you did. It's important to note that for 100 years, voting rights for black Americans were limited by Jim Crow laws. Many were disenfranchised by things such as poll taxes, literacy tests, the grandfather clause. Um, if grandfather clause? So I'm going to go over all those because okay. there, there may be some people who don't know what these things are. So a poll tax, you had to pay to vote. And if you couldn't afford to pay to vote that particular year and you were turned away, the next year you not only had to pay that year's poll tax but the previous years. So let's say, for argument's sake, the tax was a dollar, right? And so you scrimped, you saved, you have your dollar, you're going to vote, you go to vote, and they say, oh, you owe $2. Well, now you still can't vote. Um, literacy tests, they would give you an excerpt from the Constitution and expect you to not only read it, but then to also explain what that meant. If you look at any legal document today, legal jargon is not easily understood. So if you are not well-versed in, in that industry, I think it would be hard for anybody to explain what that quote might mean. The grandfather clause if your grandfather was unable to vote in the election of 1860, you can't vote. In the election of 1860, no one's black grandfather could vote. So if you look at that stipulation, it very easily prevented people from voting. Groups like the KKK would use violence, burning crosses, to try to intimidate people from voting, lynchings, and various other forms of violence to intimidate people from attempting to register to vote or to stay away from the polls on election day. Women earned the right to vote in 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment. The women's suffrage movement began in the mid-1800s. The 1848 convention in Seneca Falls, New York, is considered the start of the suffrage movement, but calls for women to gain the right to vote started much earlier. Jane Addams, of course, famously writing to her husband not to forget the ladies. For women, gaining the right to vote was critical. Women were second-class citizens, basically children in the eyes of the law. The right to vote was a critical first step for women to set out to achieve other goals like access to education, eventually higher education, to open fields that women didn't traditionally work in, and even more recently, the wage gap. When we talk about women being second-class citizens under the eyes of the law, you know, for example, women could be nurses, they could be a teacher, they could be a secretary. We're talking about as recently as the 1950s 
you know, you would have certain law schools, for example, that would hold aside one, two, maybe three spots for females who wanted to attend. And by the time graduation rolled around, maybe you would have one female left. The type of intimidation and anger that they were often on the receiving end of, how dare you take this spot that could have gone to a man. If you go back in time a little bit more, you know, if a woman, for example, claimed she was raped, the first question she would be asked was, are you married? If the answer was yes, and the person you're accusing of rape is your husband, she was told, go home. That's your husband. He can do what he wants. Your body is not your own. Um, if you go back even further, the rule of thumb, where that originated from, a woman could be beaten with any object that was not wider than the width of her husband's thumb. Um, if a woman had a job, her paycheck was made out to her husband's name. Divorce, extremely uncommon, but the children automatically went to the man, further kind of keeping women where they were. But if you look at various movements that women have participated in in order to first of course get the right to vote you have I mean you have the heavy hitters you have people like Susan B. Anthony and Lucretia Mott and you know those famous names that we hear of all the time and we throw around but you have countless women who stood in front of the White House during World War One demanding that Woodrow Wilson give women the right to vote. It really wasn't until World War I and, and the progressive era where the, the push to give women the right to vote really kind of gained steam. You have women who are taking on all of these roles because men are fighting overseas that they were once told they can't do, they couldn't handle, and here were women doing all of those things. And so women really couldn't continue to be denied the right to vote, and they were given that right to vote. But again, women kind of returned to that role of nurturer and mother and caretaker, and it's really not until during World War II and after World War II that we see women going into the workforce and then not leaving the workforce. Um, but even today, I think the onus is still on women. I mean, I can tell you a very personal story of after I had my first child, when I returned to work, so many people, women included, asking me, where's the baby? If you're here, where's the baby? Like I had left him tied to a rope next to a bowl of water and food and saying, oh, he'll be all right. You know, and I came home and I asked my husband, you know, three weeks after our child was born, when you returned to work, not this eight, nine months when I returned to work later, did anybody ask you, where's the baby? And he looked at me like, no, nobody asked me where the baby was. They just assumed you were with him. And so that assumption is still there. It mm -hmm. still kind of holds true. Um, we have a series of amendments that are eventually passed, which further protected and furthered voting rights. For example, the 17th Amendment, which most people don't even know about or talk about, it allowed for di the direct election of U.S. senators. So today we vote for our two state senators. But once upon a time, the local legislature appointed them. We had no say in who that was. The 23rd Amendment uh, in 1961 gave representatives to the District of Columbia, otherwise known as Washington, D.C., non-voting members except on the committee level 
D.C. has the same number as the least populous state, which is Wyoming, which is three electors. So if you go to Washington, D.C., or if you've ever seen a license plate from Washington, D.C., on the bottom of their license plates, they have taxation with rep without representation. We have the 24th Amendment, which was passed in 1964. This amendment helped to protect voting rights for minority groups and the poor. It outlawed things such as poll taxes. We have the 26th Amendment, which is very important. It was passed in 1971. If you know anything about history, we're in the midst of the Vietnam War. It lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. This passes in response to Vietnam protests. If you can be drafted, you should be able to vote for the person that is sending you there. In 1975, uh, we mandated that voting materials must be translated. Not everybody is going to speak English. And speaking English doesn't automatically mean that you are superior. And so we need to have voting materials in a wide variety of languages so that all people who are eligible to vote can <coughs> vote. In 1984, we're seeing polling places needing to be accessible for the elderly and for those with disabilities. If you go to fairvote.org, you can find much more information about that. And a hot button topic of today that we're seeing on the news and we're seeing a lot of debate and news articles on are felons and disenfranchisement. If you go to sentencingproject.org, there's a ton of information. I really urge you to go and to take a look and to see what's being discussed and what's being done. Felony disenfranchisement impacts 6.1 million people. For most individuals who are convicted felons, that, that term follows them around. Once they've completed their sentence, they've served their debt to society, it's hard to get a job. It's hard to get housing. It's also hard to vote. And some people have lost their right to vote forever. Um, Maine and Vermont, for example, are the only states that allow persons in prisons to vote. New Jersey, for example, is considering a similar law that would allow felons to vote while in prison. 30 states disenfranchise individuals who are on probation. So you serve your debt to society, you are released, you're on probation, you still can't vote. 34 states disenfranchise parolees. According to favorite.org, and I'm quoting here, states including Florida, Iowa, Virginia, Kentucky, ex-felons face a lengthy waiting period and must appear in front of a board and then go through a re-registration process to restore their voting rights. I can say from outside in, if you're in prison and you haven't fulfilled your debt to society, no voting. Once you get out, if you, regardless yeah. of how you get out, if you're on parole, whatever, you should be able to vote. Yeah, I don't care what the crime is. If you have, con you know, you've been convicted, you're, you're served your debt to society, you are out, that's it. You are, your full citizenship should be restored. Yes, but in jail, that's like your time out. Well, you're in jail. You're in jail. Time out. You're in jail. You don't get to do. You don't get to participate in society. Just to kind of get back on track here, Iowa and Kentucky Sorry. have the strictest laws. As of February of 2019, there were bills proposed. Neither has passed. 
and it doesn't look like it will in this legislate uh, in this legislative calendar. So they're very restrictive in regards to voting and felons. Virginia, the governor, has a law that permits him or her to restore voting rights on an individual case by case basis. You don't get. How do you do that? How do you, you, do, can't. you can't do it. No, there is that should not be one person who should say, yes, you're 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 able to. No, no, I, I don't really like your story. I don't no, think you're what, quite what there about yet. Their political persuasion and they can just say yes, 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 no, no. Well, on that side. if you look at Florida, this is where we're going. So the Florida law dates back to the Reconstruction era, the post Civil War era. So former Governor Rick Scott, he served two terms. And during those two terms, 3,000 individuals had their voting rights restored. Do not think that that is a lot. That's a very small number. I actually watched videos in my research for this particular podcast of a hearing of somebody who was looking to have their voting rights restored. And his response was, I'm just not ready to restore your vote. You're not ready. It's been years since this person has been in jail, but you, your subjective you, you're not ready to give this you person know, back their voting rights some, yet. There's, there should probably, and this is opinion, there should probably be some more guidelines. For example, just so you know how little that 3,000 number is, former governor of Florida, Charlie Christ, restored 150,000 voting rights during his four-year term. So in Florida, there is a committee that meets four times a year, which is not a lot. There are no standards. It's completely based on their opinion. It's a completely arbitrary process. In November of 2018, Florida voters passed an amendment to their state constitution, which would restore voting rights to persons convicted of a felony, except in the case of murder or sexual offenses, after they have completed all terms of their sentence, including parole or probation. The state legislature, after that amendment passed, quickly passed a law which would require individuals to pay back fines or fees to the courts before they could vote. When I read that, my gut response was, that's a poll tax by another name. Mm. In no way, shape, or form should you have to pay in order to be able to vote. In May of 2020, so this is very recent, a Florida judge ruled that mandating individuals to repay court fees was declared unconstitutional. Mm. It discriminated against those who were unable to pay. It was a poll tax by another name. It should never be where someone has to pay to vote. Election results in Florida, they tend to have very close margins. Raise, I'm talking razor thin close. So if, if you can change the tide of an election by disenfranchising an entire group of people, you can win the election. So if you look back at the history of who was able to vote, when they were able to vote, how still today people are disenfranchised, if you are eligible to vote and you are not registered to vote, please register to vote. It is not too late. You can go to vote.gov. You click on your state. It will bring you directly to your state's website on how you can register to vote. There's another site you can go to. Uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama has put out an initiative. It's called whenweallvote.org. You go there. You fill out a very brief questionnaire, and you can get yourself registered to vote. It's very user-friendly, and I hope that you understand the importance of voting and how your vote does count.